0: From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the January 6th Committee subpoenas Donald Trump. Will the former president testify? Then, Britain's political chaos could Boris Johnson, so recently resigned, come roaring back. One supporter says, "He's kind of normal, isn't he? He makes
1: mistakes like everybody else. They all lie." That's what you expect, all politicians lied. And if it wasn't on the news every five minutes, people wouldn't pay any attention. And later, many
0: Latino workers in the home of high tech now have to live unhoused. The director of TAR, Kate Blanchett's big new film, and Danny Shapiro's new novel, looks into the sky for signs of our lives too. First, our newscast, it's Saturday, October 22nd, 2022.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Residents in numerous Ukrainian cities woke up to explosions today as Russia continues its assault on the country's energy infrastructure. NPR's Nathan Rod reports multiple facilities have been hit.
3: All of Ukraine was under an air raid warning to start the day, and officials reported explosions in a number of western regions, including Rivne and Lutsk in the south, in the Odessa region, and near the capital, Kyiv. Russia has repeatedly targeted civilian energy and heating infrastructure over the last two weeks in an attempt, Ukrainian officials say, to leave millions of people without power and heat as winter approaches. Power outages have been reported in some cities and energy analysts have been telling us it will be difficult for Ukraine to rebuild infrastructure at the rate it's being hit. Nathan Ratt, NPR News, Krivy Re Ukraine.
2: Ukraine's Air Force says Russia launched a massive missile attack, but that it had shot down 18 out of 33 cruise missiles. In a televised address, President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russia of preparing to blow up a hydroelectric dam in southern Ukraine. China's ruling Communist Party approved amendments to its party charter today. Among the changes, language opposing the independence of the island of Taiwan. Here's NPR's Emily Fang reporting.
4: China has long vowed to take control of the democratic island of Taiwan. Formalizing opposition to its independence in the Communist Party charter for the first time is a signal its leaders still take that historical promise seriously. At the start of an important party meeting last week, China's leader, Xi Jinping, said China would take control of the island, including through a military invasion if needed. This past week, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken warned that China had accelerated its timeline for taking control of Taiwan, while a top U.S. Navy commander warned China could invade before 2024. Emily Fang and Pure News, Taipei, Taiwan.
2: China's ruling Communist Party also approved amendments to the party charter that further solidifies President Xi Jinping's status a day before Xi is widely expected to win a third five year term as China's leader. The party wrapped up its Congress today amid some controversy over former Chinese President Hu Jintao. He was seated next to Xi but was escorted out of today's closing ceremony. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has ordered an immediate freeze on new sales of handguns.
5: We have frozen the market for handguns in this country and our ban on imports that took play effect in August remains in place. This is one of the strongest actions we've taken on gun violence in a generation.
2: Rudeau speaking there at a news conference in Vancouver with family members of gun violence and other advocates attending. Officials in Alberta, though, say the move unfairly penalizes law-abiding firearms owners. This is NPR.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. More than 150,000 Massachusetts voters already have returned their mail-in ballots for the November 8th election, and many more people will begin turning out today to vote in person. WBUR's Steve Brown reports state law requires cities and towns to have polling places open for more than two weeks
7: before Election Day. Early and mail-in voting were made permanent in Massachusetts after first being introduced during the pandemic. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says early voting is extremely popular in the suburbs, but not so much in urban areas. And while he doesn't think the concept of election day will go away, early voting gives people options.
3: It's a fact that a 13-hour day doesn't necessarily afford or accommodate everybody's schedule. People may work outside of the community where they live, they may have to travel some distance. There may be other reasons why they can't be there for within that 13-hour time.
7: All cities and towns must offer early voting today through Friday, November 4th, although hours vary by community. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown.
6: Half a million spectators are expected this weekend along the banks of the Charles River to watch the head of the Charles Regatta. More than 11,000 participants are representing more than two dozen countries. Be prepared for traffic restrictions along parts of Soldiers Field Road and Memorial Drive. There were no survivors aboard a small plane that crashed into a building near an airport in Keene, New Hampshire last night. The Federal Aviation Administration is trying to confirm how many people were on the single-engine plane. No one on the ground was hurt or killed. It's 47 degrees in Boston sunshine today. Highs in the mid-60s, lows in the mid-40s overnight. Tomorrow, some rain likely, mainly late in the day, and highs in the low 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts.
6: Medicare Advantage plans start as low as
8: $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com go. Grogan & Company, fine art and jewelry auctioneers assisting families with the sale of their paintings and jewelry for 35 years, GroganCO.com. And Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for being with us. Former President Donald Trump, formally subpoenaed by the January 6th Committee on Friday, his former advisor, Steve Bannon, was sentenced to prison for contempt of the same committee. His voters are already casting midterm ballots in some states. NPR senior Washington editor and correspondent Ron Elvin joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Four months in prison for contempt of Congress for Steve Bannon, uh, refusing to testify for the January 6th Committee. A $6,500 fine, which... um, uh seems, af- seems like he can afford it, given his financial standing. Yes,
9: it's, it's rounding error compared to his financial standing, but also to his legal bills. Legal bills are often the real penalty in these long-running cases. Uh, Bannon is free while this case is appealed, and that may last a while. And there's another Trump confidant and economics advisor, Peter Navarro, who is still facing trial for his refusal
0: to testify to this committee committee said they were going to subpoena Donald Trump, now they have. What exactly would that subpoena compel him to do? Trump is ordered to produce
9: documents on his communications with members of Congress with respect to January 6th and with leaders of the election protests that day. Uh, those are due to Congress by November 4th. Trump is also ordered to appear in person or by video to answer the committee's questions on or about November 14th, possibly for multiple sessions over multiple days. Now, the specific dates make it all sound pretty serious, and it is, but it is also subject to negotiation and appeal. So we expect Trump will claim he's not subject to this subpoena, and it will be up to the Department of Justice to enforce that subpoena, just as they did by prosecuting Bannon and Navarro for contempt of Congress. But. The Department of Justice did not prosecute two White House officials, Mm -hmm. Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino, and no president has been prosecuted for contempt of Congress. So at some point very soon, we're going to have an election that will possibly produce a new Republican majority in the House that might just dismantle the whole investigation and say January 6th wasn't a big deal.
0: Uh, we've been talking for weeks about uh, the primacy of inflation uh, as an issue as it seems to be forming in these midterms. On Friday, President Biden announced that the federal deficit had dropped by $1.4 trillion this past year. Um, you can hear the jubilance in his voice now.
1: $1.4 trillion decline
0: in the deficit. Let me repeat that. The largest ever decline in the federal deficit. Let me be clear. This record deficit reduction includes the cost of my student loan plan and everything else we're paying for. Yet it's just the kind of argument that can sway voters who are still paying significantly more for basics, food, gas, housing. The, cl- the decline in the deficit
9: is the ultimate case of a glass half-full and half-empty, Scott. It's down $1.4 trillion, and that's by half, but we still ran a $1.4 trillion deficit in that year. We should remember that spending was largely from the bout with COVID and all the programs Congress and the last two presidents have signed into law, including tax cuts and generous benefits to keep people afloat during COVID and keep the economy alive. The bottom line, though, politically, is just that voters are paying those higher prices for nearly everything. That's why the pollsters find 70% of Americans think the country's on the wrong track and why most polls think the Democrats are likely to lose their majority in the House. The Senate, of course, is a much tougher call. Democrats are defending some of their seats in the West, Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, and Washington. But they are gunning for several in the East, especially in states where Republicans are retiring, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina. They think they've got shots in Wisconsin and Florida, too. So the vulnerabilities are about even in this 50-50 Senate. But one thing to bear in mind is that in the last two cycles, we have seen Democrats fall short of what the polls
0: had been predicting they could do. NPR's Ron Elvin, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Now to Western Europe, where an energy crisis could soon exacerbate the global food price crisis. The rising price of natural gas is making one gas-intensive product too expensive to make. That's fertilizer. And Pierre's Eleanor Beardsley tells us more about Europe's looming shortage.
10: Outside of Russia and Ukraine, France is the largest wheat grower and exporter in Europe, according to the UN. Grain farmer Cyril Millard greets me in the middle of his fertile fields about an hour east of Paris. This is a massive truck with a ladder to get in it. I climb a ladder to join him in the cabin of his massive combine. On this afternoon, he's harvesting corn. We plow through nine-foot-tall stalks, six rows at a time. As the husks are stripped, a steady stream of kernels is spit into the back of the harvester. Millard says the drought was terrible this summer, but last-minute storms saved his crop. Farmers have always lived at the mercy of the weather, he says. But to worry about fertilizer?
0: No, this is a factor we never, ever considered before. We are losing all our bearings these days. I have about half of what I need. I ordered 90 more tons of fertilizer, but no one can tell me if I will get it in time for my wheat crop
6: next
10: spring. Millard says without fertilizer, his yields would be halved. He'd harvest six tons of corn instead of 13 and barely cover his production costs. France exports 45% of its grain harvest every year, says the French government, making it one of the top world's exporters. Millard says reduced yields would spell trouble for developing countries that need French wheat, like Algeria and Egypt. Bonjour, monsieur. In Paris, Arnaud Rousseau is vice-president of France's largest agricultural association. He says crops take minerals from the soil, so those minerals have to be replaced, especially nitrogen.
9: It is absolutely uh,
0: obvious that we need nitrogen for our uh, crops, especially for wheat, corn, rapeseed or sunflower. And without any nitrogen, you can't have
11: any result, any yield. And that's the reason why we're a little bit frightened.
10: Rousseau says the process for making mineral nitrogen fertilizer the most vital and widely used is gas-intensive. And with the price of natural gas skyrocketing, most European fertilizer makers have stopped producing. He switches to French.
5: We either have to import gas or fertilizer. We also get most of our fertilizer from Russia and Belarus, and now with the war, that's much harder. We're trying to get it from other places.
10: Western Europe's largest fertilizer producer recently urged the EU to secure access to gas to bolster its fertilizer industry, saying Europe must reduce dependency on Russia for fertilizers. Experts have warned that millions could go hungry if the world's farmers can't get enough nitrogen for their fields. Back at his farm, Millard is finally getting a delivery of fertilizer ordered months ago. The 46-year-old farmer uses a forklift to hoist 1,300-pound bags from the truck. He says a load like this used to cost him five or 6,000 euros. Now it's 25,000. Millard's 84-year-old father, Pierre, who also farmed this land, looks on. I ask him if things have changed much. Oh, oui.
0: Enormément, <laughs> oui.
10: Oh, yes, enormously, he says. Millard says there's been huge progress, take farm machinery, but he's worried France is no longer self-reliant. Take the fertilizer situation. Fertilizer is like food for your kids. You can't raise a family if you have nothing to put on their plates. If you can't get enough fertilizer, says Millard, you might as well close up shop. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Provence, France.
0: I like pumpkin spice. There, I've said it. Have at me. In this season, the scent of pumpkin spice seems to hang o'er the land. Pumpkin spice lattes, of course, but also pumpkin spice lip balm, nut butter, ale and spam. I'm not making that up. Pumpkin spice tea, Twinkies, popcorn, protein powder, bone broth, and pumpkin spice dog treats. Why shouldn't your dog share some autumnal cheer? Pumpkin Spice inspires much disdain. The late Anthony Bourdain memorably told a Reddit Ask Me Anything forum in 2016, I would like to see the Pumpkin Spice craze drowned in its own blood. We asked Simon Schama, the great British historian, an essayist, his opinion of Pumpkin Spice. This heralded chronicler of human events, arts, and achievements told us it's an abomination. Pumpkin Spice means the stuff you have to add to pumpkins to make them taste of something, which in turn is an icky, nausea-inducing nasal stew of cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg, and brown sugar. It is meant to bring on a spell of autumnal coziness as the darkness draws in and the mercury drops, but it's really part of the thumb-sucking, blanket-hugging, cinnaboning infantilization of America from which these days limitless treasures are to be mined. I cannot dispute such eloquent condemnation, but I no longer suck my thumb. So, when leaves turn gold, red, and crunchy, I light a pumpkin spice candle. I brew a pot of pumpkin spice coffee and douse my hands with pumpkin spice soap. My family restrains me in the aisles of grocery stores, lest I sneak pumpkin spice cream cheese, yogurt, or Cheerios into our cart. Our daughters get on the loudspeaker. You, over in aisle four, put down that pumpkin spice mochi! I know the pumpkin spice flavor is contrived and ridiculous. I don't care. I imagine a group of marketing executives laughing in some subterranean lair. Pumpkin spice hummus, they'd exclaim. How ludicrous. Who'd ever fall for that? And a research scientist points to a screen of statistics. Don't fret, he tells them. Some guy from Chicago will buy it by the tub. I don't crave pumpkin spice in the swelter of summer, but this time of year, pumpkin spice is... My blankie, my bunny slippers, my reruns of the Great British Baking Show. And in my time left over, I also watch cute animal videos. (music) Ah, I feel better already. You're listening to NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. And with so much at stake in this year's midterm elections, you don't want to fall behind. WBUR and NPR are keeping you informed every step of the way. Keep listening here for the midterm updates you need.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. And Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com.
6: It is 51 degrees in Boston, not a bad day in store. Sunshine highs in the mid-60s. This is WBUR.
2: I'm Joyle Snyder with these headlines. Former President Donald Trump and his legal team say they are reviewing a subpoena from the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The panel formally issued the subpoena yesterday, demanding Trump's testimony under oath by mid-November. Federal health authorities are reporting a surge in children hospitalized with a range of respiratory illnesses, including flu, RSV, and other common viruses. Experts say the surge could be attributed to isolation during the pandemic. And the Philadelphia Phillies are taking a two games to one lead into today's game four of the National League Championship Series against the San Diego Padres. In the American League, the Houston Astros have a two-game lead over the New York Yankees heading into today's game three. I'm Childe Snyder, NPR News.
12: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Morgan Stanley with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the Market. And from IQ. A platform for everyday AI, to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams and companies, D-A-T-A-I-K-U
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News, I'm Scott Simon. There's a field of potential successors all lined up following the resignation of Liz Truss as Britain's Prime Minister. And near the top of that list, Britain's former Treasury Secretary, Rishi Sunak, and former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, indeed the same man who was forced to resign in July. NPR's London correspondent, Frank Langfitt has been talking to voters in the UK. Frank, thanks for being with us.
5: Hey, good morning, Scott. How will this race work? Yeah, so the way it works is in order to get on the ballot, you have to have 100 uh, Conservative Party lawmakers support you. It's, It's clear Rishi Sunak already has that. Johnson is maybe between 51 and 69, depending on the count. And then a woman named Penny Morden, she's the former defense secretary. She's a distant third at about 25. If you get it to two people running, it'll go to the conservative party membership for a vote uh, later next week. And if only one person gets to 100, which Sunak already has, then you actually become the party leader and the prime minister. Um, Morton's the only one who's actually declared that she's running. And Johnson sounds fairly serious about this. He's actually flown back from a Caribbean vacation, apparently, to mount a campaign.
0: He was drummed out of office so recently to great embarrassment. Um, how, How does he come roaring back this way?
5: Yeah, it's a really good question. And that's on the minds of a lot of people here. I was actually out in sort of strong conservative party territory northwest of London. And I ran into this Johnson supporter He's got Chris Barrett. He's 56. He's a builder. And his point, uh, you hear from other conservative supporters and Johnson supporters is, you know, Johnson won a big election for the party in 2019. And this person feels that the lawmakers, his own lawmakers, just shouldn't have pushed him out.
1: They shouldn't have got rid of Boris. Anyway? Absolutely not. He was voted in. They, they shouldn't have got rid of him. It should be the people vote him out. Bring back Boris. What did you like about Boris? He's kind of normal, isn't he? He makes mistakes like everybody else. They all lie. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you expect. All politicians lied. And if it wasn't on the news every five minutes, people wouldn't pay any attention.
5: And Scott, what Barrett's referring to is, you know, Johnson last year uh, lying over these government parties and staffers yeah. were involved with. He even attended a couple of them and lied about them. And they violated the COVID lockdown rules of his own government. Um, and that for his lawmakers was, and a lot of people in the country, that was a last straw.
0: Did Mr. Barrett have other reasons for supporting Boris Johnson?
5: Yeah, I I think um, the big thing for him is that he's a winner. And that's another reason, you know, he won the London mayor's race twice. Uh, He won the Brexit vote. And it's not easy to find people in the Conservative or the Labour Party who have such a broad appeal as at least Johnson's had in the past.
0: What arguments did you hear against him?
5: Oh, a a lot. I mean, a lot of people are very unhappy with this and they're kind of incredulous. There's a guy named James Carson Kerrigan. I I met him up in Uxbridge, which is Johnson's district, basically. This guy, James, is a editor uh, of community news organization. He even voted for Johnson in 2014 and this was his reaction.
1: I would be
2: very embarrassed to see Boris representing us internationally again as prime minister. He's ridiculed British politics with the lies about Partygate. It's time for him to hang up his coat And move on to something else.
0: So, how would he become Prime Minister again?
5: Well, if it comes down to Sunak and Johnson, it goes to the Conservative Party membership. They're older, whiter, more conservative than the rest of the country, and they tend to like Johnson. Frank Langford, thanks so much. Good to talk, Scott.
0: Grammy Awards voting just getting underway. Controversy is already brewing. (laughs) Nicki Minaj says her song Super Freaky Girl was changed from the rap category to pop, and she is not happy. Tomorrow, on Weekend Edition Sunday, Ayesha and NPR Music, Stephen Thompson, Break It Down. How do you categorize a song anyway? You can listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Homelessness among Latinos is up dramatically in San Francisco and elsewhere in California. That's despite renter protections put in place during the pandemic. For member station KQED, Vanessa Roncaño reports that this community is especially vulnerable to sky-high rents.
11: Every Tuesday, as the sun comes up, dozens of RV residents that call San Francisco's Winston Drive home prepare for a weekly ritual. Avoiding the street sweeper. With the street cleaned, they rumble back to their designated spots.
13: With
11: the weekly move done, Jose Luis Diaz stands outside his RB, waiting for his kids to finish getting ready for school. He says there's an order to things here. It's a community. He's got the spot with the tree, because he was the first one out here, about a month into the pandemic. Diaz lost his job as a sous chef in March of 2020. Within a few weeks, he'd moved into the RV with his wife and kids. They're now 17 and 12. Later, he says other families from the apartment building where they were living in nearby Daly City came to check it out.
13: When they
11: Now they're neighbors again out here. They're among the growing ranks of Latinos living on San Francisco's streets or in RVs, cars, or city shelters. Homelessness among Latino residents in San Francisco is up 55% since the start of the pandemic, despite an overall drop in the city's homeless population. In neighboring Alameda County, Latino homelessness rose an astonishing 73%. So there's just a lot of ways that our community is very vulnerable. Laura Valdez is executive director of the Latino-focused Dolores Street Community Services. She says the kinds of service industry jobs available to many Latinos disappeared during the pandemic. So when
10: every single person in the household is losing their job, it really created a very dire situation.
11: Add to it language and cultural barriers that prevented people from accessing services, a lack of shelters in the city's primary Latino neighborhood, and a lot of informal living situations. Many of our community members, they don't have a lease and they don't know their rights. When tenants don't know their rights, don't speak English or don't have legal status, it gives landlords a lot of power. Valdez says that contributes to disproportionate formal and informal evictions among Latinos. Outside his RV, Jose Diaz surveys the neighborhood. Yeah, there's a lot of Latinos here, he says. He says a lot of people here are immigrants. and Some don't have papers, so they can't get unemployment. He shrugs his shoulders and asks, what else can people do? It's not just undocumented Latinos, though. Diaz has a visa that allows him to work legally, but he didn't apply for assistance because he worried it could hurt his pending application for permanent residency.
13: Como si estás pidiendo, se que no acto, entonces...
11: Latinos now make up 30 percent of homeless people in San Francisco, though they're only 16 percent of the overall population, according to the city's most recent count. In response, the city is funneling more resources to the historically Latino Mission Neighborhood, says Emily Cohen, a spokesperson for the city's Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. We are increasing partnerships with Latinx-serving
14: organizations to help ensure that we have culturally appropriate, culturally competent service
11: providers. Advocates welcome that. But to truly address the problem, they say, officials have to take on the root cause, the shortage of affordable housing and the high cost of living in San Francisco. Even before the pandemic, with Diaz and his wife working, he says after rent and bills, they'd be left with $150 at the end of the month. Nobody can get by on that, he says. Everyone who ended up out here on the street is just trying to survive. Diaz is now working as a truck driver. He plans to stay in the RV, save money, and move away because he doesn't see a future here. For NPR News, I'm Vanessa Rancaño in San Francisco.
0: The snow crab fishery in the Bering Sea will be closed this winter. That is a first under U.S. management, and it follows... A catastrophic crash in the number of crabs there, nearly 90% between 2018 and 2021. Scientists think climate change plays an important role. This closing is especially hard on captains and crews who rely on snow crabs. Gabriel Prout and his family own a crabbing boat in Kodiak, Alaska. He joins us from there. Mr. Prout, thanks so much for being with us.
15: You're welcome. Thanks for letting me be here.
0: What's this closing going to do to you and your family?
15: Yeah, the closure of the snow crab fishery for the the first time in its history is gonna be having a really devastating impact on on me and my family. It's gonna have a a huge impact on the fishery in general. We're um, really struggling to find a path forward here just going into the next year with the complete closure, trying to pay our bills and invoices, mortgage fees, insurance fees, the vessels themselves that go out to the Bering Sea are incredibly expensive to maintain and operate. So this closure, for the first time ever, along with the second closure in a row for king crab, is really making it difficult to find a path forward here.
0: This is your life, right?
15: Yeah. It's my my livelihood. I've grown up watching my dad fish out in the Bering Sea. He's been fishing out there for over 45 years. I went off to, to university, got a degree, but found myself called back to the sea. I work alongside my two brothers on deck. Our father is a skipper of the vessel, so it's, it's in our blood. Uh, I can't really get away from it. So, seeing the the crash of the snow crab which no one expected is is really really hard to just put into words the the impact that it's going to have on us
0: forgive me but what else can you do for money
15: there's not a lot of options these boats are specifically designed to to go out and catch the species of crab out in the ocean Our, our money maker that pays our bills is the snow crab season there's a couple other operations we can do but when you take 60 vessels off the, the Bering Sea and tell them they're, they're not going to be able to make any money, they're all going to be scrambling for those same very yeah. few opportunities that they can find.
0: Oh my gosh. Forgive me, Mr. Prout, but are you looking at bankruptcy?
15: It's um, it's definitely on the table. Uh, again, we, we bought into this fishery. My, my brothers and I, my father, were, were second and third generation fishermen. We bought into the snow crab fishery when the stocks were high. We took out loans to buy into this fishery, get the fishing rights, and now we're still having to pay those loans that we borrowed against when there's no revenue to be had. So bankruptcy, seizures of vessels, uh, is very, very real right now and very much on the table.
0: Your trade organization, the Alaska Baryan Sea Crabbers, is trying to get a disaster declaration. Would that be good? Would it be enough?
15: Yeah. I'm a board member on the Alaska Baryan Sea Crabbers. We've put a disaster declaration forward for the king crab season as well as the snow crab season. The problem with that is is those fishery disasters typically takes years to to process and get funds into the hands of the fishermen. By the time the funds finally do come around and get paid out to the fishermen who are affected by this, they very well may have already been forced into bankruptcy, been forced to sell out, or just moved on completely. We need kind of a, a rapid relief program to fishermen, not something that takes years.
0: Mr. Prout, scientists are convinced that warming waters played a big role in the, the crash of the crab population, and climate change is, is not disappearing. Is this a good business to be in?
15: At the moment, it would not seem so. Warming waters do seem like they are playing some type of factor into the disappearance of snow crab. That's kind of the, the why behind uh, where they've gone. As far as the how, we're, we're not exactly sure. Scientists are still figuring that one out. They don't know if the warmer waters possibly uh, forced the snow crab into deeper areas where the fleet does not fish, or did the warming waters have something to do with a predation by, by other predators for the snow crab. We're not exactly sure on that, or did it introduce a new disease due to the little bit warmer temperatures.
0: Given discouraging prospects, is this a business that you... Well, let's put it this way: Do you have a backup plan?
15: Right now, uh, there's no particular backup plan. Um, you kind of go into this uh, all in, hundred percent invested. Um, I, I think it's going to be a really difficult set of, of years coming up. And what we're really trying to focus on is figure out the the more into the why, but also the how the snow crab disappeared. We want to prevent this from happening again. We want to uh, do what we can to, to bring back that fishery and, and build a, a climate resilient fishery as well, if that is even possible. So we're really looking at options at preserving uh, what's left of the snow crab population by state managed Properties and, and federally regulated choices that the, the government can make to, to help us with this.
0: Gabriel Prout, crab fisherman in Kodiak, Alaska. Thank you so much. Good luck to you, sir. Thank you, Scott. To weekend edition from NPR News. I take a few minutes to meet a new artist, whose music blends old Spanish folk with electronic sounds, like synths and autotune. NPR's Isabella Gomez Sarmiento has this introduction.
16: His name is Álvaro La Fuente, and he relishes the past. The twenty-four-year-old musician from Benicasim, Spain, traces his lineage through song.
17: I think that my musical origins are very like influenced by my family and, and by the background in my family.
16: He performs as Guitarrica de la Fuente. He's inspired by Jota, the folkloric style of music native to the Aragon region of Spain, where his family is from.
17: My grand, granddad used to be like the, the jota teacher and the, the, the guitar and bandurria teacher in, in my village.
16: That village is Las Cuevas de Cañar, a small town with an aging population. Their kids, like Alvaro's parents, grew up and moved closer to the cities. But Alvaro says the big extended families always come back and
17: visit. Everybody got together again and the streets came again with life and with, and with youth.
16: He remembers running down the streets with other kids and the grandparents shouting.
17: Here comes La Cantera. You know, as as like the the future generations, you know?
16: La Cantera, the young folks. That's actually what Alvaro called his album. It explores the relationship between old and young, tradition and innovation. This song, A Carta Cabal, captures the spirit of the
17: album. A Carta Cabal is the full essence of something. For example, you are honest, A Carta Cabal. You are humble, A Carta Cabal. You are um, uh, happy, A Carta Cabal. It's like the, the fullest expression of something.
16: The music video for Acarta Cabal features three generations in a desolate forgotten town. Still the children run and play together, maintaining a hopeful optimism. A Carta Cabal received a Latin Grammy nomination for Best Short Form Music Video.
17: It also like represents like this sense of youth or this sense of excitement or that Things are changing.
16: The change, he says, comes from young people trying to reconnect with their roots.
17: Going back home with your grandma and going to a specific bar in Barcelona where they serve like the traditional bravas or the traditional tortilla, you know?
16: That feeling is really the beating heart of Álvaro's album, La Cantera.
17: For me, this is more like a presentation card like for people to know me or to know where I come from, which I think is like the most on his way to, to show yourself to people.
16: So Guitarrica Rica de la Fuente is making those introductions, song by song. Isabella Gomez Sarmiento, NPR News.
18: This is
0: NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Early in-person voting begins today in Massachusetts. State law now requires cities and towns to have polling places open for more than two weeks before Election Day. This year, the state made early in-person voting and mail-in voting permanent after the options first were introduced because of the pandemic. Today, a service is held for an East Boston soldier killed decades ago in the Korean War. The remains of Corporal Joseph Pupolo were identified over the summer. He was 19 years old when he disappeared in 1950, and the military believes he died in a prisoner of war camp. If you're making plans to enjoy some fair weather pre-Halloween strolling around Salem today, then don't drive. That's the urgent request of Salem officials. They are calling on people to use public transportation to get to the city's Haunted Happening celebration. So far this month, a record number of people have visited Salem. The MBTA is adding extra commuter rail trips to Salem this weekend and next weekend.
8: WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a MedEx Medicare supplemental plan that works for you visit bluecrossma.com/go the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with Titus Kaphar's Jerome Project Portraits on Race Representation and Mass Incarceration gardnermuseum.org and Good News Garage accepting tax deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996 goodnewsgarage.org
19: Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into morning edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how.
11: Just go to WBUR.org.
12: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Tar is one of the biggest films of the fall. Cate Blanchett as Lydia Tar, a world-class, world-roving orchestra conductor, New York City, Berlin, who is by universal acclaim, brilliant, driven, and has the rare genius to make classical music come alive.
20: Please. Please, 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 you must watch. Das ist ganz frei hier, okay?
12: It's gotta be like a, just one person singing their heart out.
0: But what is the cost of that song she creates sometimes to her and to others? Todd Field wrote and directed Tara and he joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. What made you want to tell this story?
19: Well, I've been thinking about this character for a very long time and sort of been asking myself, you know, some questions of how how we look at power, you know, like who has it, who feeds it, who benefits, you know, and from the beginning of time, that hasn't really been a question. Those individuals have been male and the last 2000 years, predominantly white males. So we're attenuated to how we're supposed to feel about that and potentially uh, the tempo of arriving at that feeling narrows the possibilities of examining how the Pyramid of Power actually functions. So it felt sort of important that maybe our our lead character wasn't a male um, and that perhaps we would have a, a slightly more nuanced way of asking some questions.
0: You, you do appreciate seeing this film, how um, the head of a major orchestra really is a CEO, isn't she?
19: Yeah, she's sitting at the at the head of a, a very large bureaucracy with very very defined um, lines of power and how that's transmitted and transmuted between different parties for sure.
0: Yeah, Kate Blanchett, uh has been acclaimed for giving the performance of a lifetime, which is um, quite a statement given uh, her lifetime career. I want to play this clip. She is um, trying to describe what she does on stage to the real life Adam Gopnik so, yeah. of The New
1: Yorker as the, the
0: orchestra's metronome.
12: However, unlike a clock, sometimes
1: my second hand stops, which means that time stops. Now, the illusion is that, like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real right. time, making right. the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning i know precisely what time it is and the exact moment that you and i will arrive at our destination together
0: that description is if i may sensuous and and lyrical and intoxicating are they also the words of someone who was intoxicated with all that power
19: well i mean it's a it's a very very um you know exalted position to be a conductor as anyone who's had the opportunity and the uh, privilege of doing it will will tell you and if you talk to other conductors or if you if you hear them speak they talk about that feeling of the music coming through them Mm -hmm. um there are very few people who who walk the earth who who knows exactly what that is it's a little bit like being on mount olympus you know
0: yeah what does lydia tar find in music do you think
19: I think she found probably the very first glimpse as a young person, you know, viewing say Lenny Bernstein on PBS or something like that, which was a window to something beautiful and fine and exotic that she didn't have in her upbringing. Um, And she ran toward that uh, Mm -hmm. as a dream. And that dream now has become sort of a nightmare based on, as you point out, you know, what she's actually doing running this organization and and probably speaking to some of her less than um, admirable traits.
0: I think we don't reveal too much to say she's accused of abusing her power to um, compel sexual relationships. Tar and some of the people around her invariably cite a long list of male conductors who did the same thing historically. But it's 2022 now. Is it enough to say, well, you know, that's what white cisgendered men did?
19: No, I don't think it's enough to say that. I mean, it's, you know, in many ways, this film's a fractured fairy tale. I mean, there's never been a single woman who's held the principal conductor post of a major German orchestra. However, I, you know, I wanted to tell this story where the fact that the character was a female was simply a given. Mm-hmm. But this character very much downplays her identity and her gender for her own selfish reasons, you know. Um, she wants to be judged on, on her own merits, but, mm-hmm. but there is something she's not talking about, which is vitally important, you know, that disparity. I mean, she's essentially operating within the same parameters as any of the patriarchy that came before her.
0: I guess the question your film keeps raising is, um, is genius worth the cost to one's self or to, uh, to those they love?
19: And what is genius? You know, the very fact that there's an otherness in that word says that it's not normal. You know, what's expected of, of people that have particular gifts? How much do we allow? And I think those are those are very um, important questions and difficult questions mm-hmm. to, to try and answer.
0: Could uh, Kate Blanchett really conduct a, a symphony if she needed to?
19: I think Kate Blanchett could do anything that she set her mind to. Um, I mean, Kate is a genius. Um, that's not overstating things. Um, yes, Kate Blanchett is conducting the Mahler. She's conducting the Elgar. And I reckon that if she decided to change vocations and devote her life to that, that she would be an inspired person on the podium for sure.
0: Tar is out now, the new film written, directed by Todd Field. Mr. Field, thank you so much for being with us.
19: Thank you very much.
0: Many of us took liberties with our hairstyles during the pandemic. We sure did at the Topeka Zoo and Conservation Center.
20: So we're like, oh, weird, you know, Zuri's getting a mohawk. And then she started to really grow the fur around her neck. We're like, holy moly, Zuri is growing a mane. And that is animal curator Shanna Simpson. Zuri is an
0: 18-year-old lioness. Her fellow lion, Avis, died in 2020. He was the only male of Topeka's three lions, didn't take long for Zuri to start growing that distinctively long hair that is mainly associated with males.
20: It's nothing like a fully sexually mature male lion. She kind of has this, like, teenage vibe going on. So I would say it's probably about, like, three or four inches long, you know, around her neck. And it goes down below her chin uh, and her lower jaw. And it kind of hangs down uh, close to her chest. And then she does have that mohawk still. Uh, the mohawk is my favorite part.
0: Shanna Simpson says Zuri has always had a strong personality, more or less ran the pride even when Avis was around.
20: She's a very dominant female. She always has been. You know, she's kind of in charge. She's the more feisty one.
0: But Shanna Simpson says Zuri is elderly, and her facial hair may be a natural, normal rise in her testosterone. A lioness at the Oklahoma City Zoo who developed a mane died in 2018 because of cancer in her adrenal gland. Zuri is in good health, and her caretakers see no signs of serious illness, and other cases
20: have been benign. In Botswana, there was a pride of lionesses, like four or five lionesses, uh, and they did a study on them, and they increased their testosterone, and they, they showed signs of being the protectors and kind of taking that role and getting a mane. So it's just, it's fascinating. It's so rare, and it's fascinating.
0: Zuri and the other lions have always been a favorite at the Topeka Zoo and Conservation Center, and even zoo regulars have mistaken Zuri for a new male cat. Animal curator Shanna Simpson says...
20: She's just not as pretty as she used to be.
0: Ah, but she does now look a lot more like B.J. Liederman, who does our theme music, Growl. Danny Shapiro's new novel begins with a crash, but also contemplation. Let's ask the author to read from the very beginning of her new novel, Signal Fires.
4: And it's nothing really, or might be nothing, or ought to be nothing, as he leans his head forward to press the tip of his cigarette to the car's lighter. It sizzles on contact, a sound particular to its brief moment in history, when cars have lighters and otherwise sensible 15-year-olds choke down Marlboro Reds, and drive their mother's Buicks without so much as a learner's permit. There's a girl he wants to impress. Her name is Misty Zimmerman. And if she lives through this night, she will grow up to be a magazine editor, or a high school teacher, or a defense lawyer. She will be a mother of three, or remain childless. She will die young of ovarian cancer, or live to know her great-grandchildren. But these are only a few possible arcs to a life a handful of shooting stars in the night sky. Change one thing, and everything changes. A tremor here sets off an earthquake there. A fault line deepens. A wire gets tripped. His foot on the gas. Danny Shapiro
0: joins us now from New York. Thank you so much for being with us.
4: It's wonderful to be with you.
0: Wow. Um, does the selfless gesture Sarah, the older sister, undertakes? For her brother wind up burdening their whole
4: family yeah exactly i mean the, the wolf family at the end of that evening has a shared secret not just keeping it from the rest of the world but keeping it from each other never speaking of it within their family and the novel in so many ways is about the aftermath yeah and it's a very
0: engaging family the wilfs i mean ben the uh the father is a doctor And from the evidence, we are allowed to see a very good doctor, although he does make one mistake. His spouse, Mimi, uh, Sarah, their daughter, Theo, their son. But tell us about the little boy across the street.
4: Yeah, the the little boy's name is Waldo Schenkman. And when I began the novel, I really began um, by imagining Waldo and Ben. And the, the image that I had was of this older man, a doctor, standing in his home and it's his last night in this home. He's alone, his children aren't there and he's looking out the window and across the street, Division Street, he sees this 11-year-old boy who is at his window and he's holding what Ben thinks of as a contraption. Turns out it's an iPad, but iPads were very new then. He's holding this contraption up to the sky because Waldo is obsessed with the cosmos and so there are these two lonely people at the very outset um, of signal fires who are lonely in very different ways.
0: Chapters move between 1985, uh, 2010, 1999, 2020, uh, 2014, 1970, I might be leaving out a few. What do you want us to discover in this shift between times and years?
4: It was really when I discovered the structure of those shifts in time that I discovered the novel. I had started Signal Fires 15 years ago, and I couldn't crack it. And at the start of the pandemic, I found it again. And the thought that went through my mind, and it was like a lightning bolt, was, and now it's 2020. Who would these people be in 2020?
0: One of the many pleasures of this novel is the attention and the honor you, you do to professionalism and craft. Um, Dr. Wilt's medical technique, uh, Sarah's screenwriting. Let me get you to talk about Theo who becomes a, a fancy temperamental chef in Brooklyn.
4: Um, his love of cooking begins with his mother when he's a boy growing up, cooking with her. It's a place of comfort for him. And this becomes, for him, what saves him.
0: i got to ask you about a line that has seared itself into me. Ben Wilf has come to believe we live in loops rather than one straight line.
4: I'm so glad that that, that that sentence meant something to you because it really meant something to me. We always carry our past with us. We always carry all the selves we've ever been like, you know, like a series of Russian dolls. They're always inside of us. And in some way or another, I think we're also carrying our future selves or our imagined future selves that we're not, I mean, time marches inexorably forward in in one respect and in the way that we experience it. But in another way, it feels like there are all of these wormholes, if you will, all of these ways Mm -hmm. in which we Um, are able to experience the totality of time, and I know that in the rare times for myself that I've been able to feel that, I am at my most alive.
0: To borrow from your own words again, does does the air shimmer with everyone we've ever loved?
4: I experience it that way. When I put this book in the drawer 15 years ago, I had a lot more life to live to be able to really tell this story. I'll tell you one very uh, extraordinary and mystical thing um, that is part of the book, which is that... So I began the book 15 years ago, and then about seven years later, I discovered that my dad, who raised me, had not been my biological father. I created the character of Ben Wilf seven or eight years before I made that discovery. He is just like my biological father. Um, He has the same medical profession... He looks like him. He very much has his nature. What does that mean that I imagined and conjured this this fully fleshed-out character that was not not something in any way based on someone that I knew existed?
0: All right, I have chills now.
4: Yeah, so talk about (laughs) shimmer. (laughs) I mean, there's your shimmer.
0: Danny Shapiro's new novel, Signal Fires, Thank you so much for being with us.
4: It's my pleasure. Thank you.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott
12: Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from FJC, a foundation of philanthropic funds working to meet the needs of the nonprofit sector through donor-advised funds, fiscal sponsorships, and bridge lending. More at fjc.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. It's coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. Brookline Booksmith, presenting Emperor of All Maladies author Siddhartha Mukherjee and his new book, The Song of the Cell, Tuesday, October 25th brooklinebooksmith.com and xfinity internet committed to delivering internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget more at xfinity.com gig
21: Recently on Wait, Wait, Ralph Macchio, the Karate Kid himself, admitted he really likes that movie's anthem, You're the Best Around.
22: In recent times, on the Long Island Expressway, when I am cooking, <laughs> I'm cranking that mofo. I'm, just...
21: I'm Peter Sagel Join us this week as our panelists do their own last-minute training montage on stage in Boston. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m.
5: on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
23: I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Chinoy, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Donald Trump subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. Student debt relief on pause. Mosquito researcher and why they find some of us irresistible and just aren't into some of the rest of us. Baseball playoffs, Fields versus Pods, Yanks versus Strohs, Cormac McCarthy's first new novel, two novels really in 16 years, and the Swedish pop star Tuvalu takes us through her new album.
24: It's like my kind of sassy, jealous, drunk song. Like sometimes when I'm a little bit drunk and I'm feeling myself and I, you know, and and I get a bit jealous and and I can be like, why are you talking to that person? You should be looking at me.
0: We are. We are. First, our newscast today is Saturday, October 22nd,
2: 2022. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Ukraine's energy utility says that damage from today's country wide air raids has broken previous records. From Kyiv, NPR's Yulian
7: Haidab reports. Almost all of Ukraine was under orders to seek shelter from Russian bombardment this morning. Officials in southern, central, and western Ukrainian cities say the attacks seriously damaged electrical infrastructure there. Enerho, Ukraine's national power company, says that the latest attacks have caused even more damage than last week's unprecedented nationwide airstrikes. The company is recommending Ukrainians ration even more energy after rolling blackouts have become regular in the past two weeks here. A new report from the Kyiv School of Economics found that even before these latest escalations, Ukraine had about $130 billion worth of damage to rebuild.
2: Yulian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. Iran's president condemning a call by three European countries for a United Nations investigation into allegations that Russia is using drones supplied by Iran to attack Ukraine. Peter Kenyon reports Iran's foreign ministry continues to deny sending combat drones for use in Ukraine.
5: Foreign ministry spokesman Nasser Kanani said the call for a U.N. probe was, quote, false and baseless, and it was strongly rejected and condemned. In a speech, President Ibrahim Raisi said Iran's enemies had been angered by the country's success and progress, saying, quote, let the enemy get angry and die of anger. At issue are Iranian-made attack drones that U.S. officials say were supplied to Moscow for use against Ukraine. France, Britain and Germany are supporting Ukraine's demand for a U.N. probe, saying the use of the drones violates a U.N. Security Council resolution. Peter Kenyon, NPR News,
2: Istanbul. Anti-government demonstrations in Iran are ongoing following last month's death of a young woman in the custody of the country's morality police. State TV is showing fresh destruction in the southeastern city of Zahedan. Tensions there erupted yesterday. Stores were vandalized and ATMs were damaged. Rights groups say dozens of people were killed there last month. Stocks ended the week higher. The Dow gaining almost 5 percent as NPR's David Gur reports Wall Street Focus was on bank earnings and bonds. Well, higher interest rates hurt investment banking at the likes of Goldman Sachs, Morgan
9: Stanley, and Citigroup because there haven't been many IPOs or mergers and acquisitions. The largest banks in the US did make money lending, and they reported balance sheets still look pretty good despite growing concerns about the future of the US economy. All three major indexes ended the week higher. Next week, tech companies are front and center. Investors will pay close attention to what they're saying about a potential recession. A bond sell-off eased a bit, but earlier in the week, the yield on the 10-year Treasury was the highest it's been since 2008. David Gura, NPR News, New York. This is NPR.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is introducing new environmental standards in the city where public space is limited by streets and sidewalks. New projects will be required to create areas to reduce flooding from stormwater. Wu also says the city is making an effort to recruit people to work for the environment.
25: This volunteer program and the trainings are part of our push to build green jobs in the city and make sure that they stay in Boston for our residents.
6: The changes also are intended to help filter stormwater runoff before it drains into waterways. A service will be held today for an East Boston soldier killed decades ago in the Korean War. The remains of Corporal Joseph Popolo were identified over the summer. He was 19 years old in 1950. The military says he was a prisoner of war. As Halloween draws near, Salem is urging visitors to take public transportation to the city's haunted happening celebration. A record number of people have already been to Salem so far this month. Police Chief Lucas Miller says many roads in the downtown area are closed.
1: This becomes a traffic nightmare very, very quickly. And we do everything we can to mitigate it, but the roads simply can't handle the volume of cars coming in.
6: The MBTA is adding more commuter rail trains to Salem this weekend and next weekend. On the D branch of the Green Line, the T is using shuttle buses instead of trains over the next week between Riverside and Kenmore. This is the final of three scheduled shutdowns this fall for the MBTA reconstruction project. On the Red Line, train service is being replaced by buses this weekend between JFK UMass and Ashmont to allow for track work. It is 51 degrees in Boston, sunshine today, highs in the mid-60s, lows in the mid-40s tonight, tomorrow, some rain likely, and highs in the low 60s. This is WBUR.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College. Committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized, career-long mentoring. Online.merrimack.edu the Boston Book Festival, presenting 200 authors in person in Copley Square on Saturday, October 29th. Details at bostonbookfest.org. And Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for joining us. The House Committee investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th has subpoenaed Donald Trump. They want him to testify under oath and to turn over official records. And Pierce Barbara Sprunt joins us now. Barbara, thanks so much for being with us. Well,
22: thank you for having me.
0: What's the committee asking for?
22: Well, it's asking for Trump's testimony under oath and for records that are relevant to its investigation. This isn't a surprise. It comes about a week after the committee voted unanimously to subpoena Trump. And the committee has outlined document requests. So it wants communications that Trump had with longtime ally Roger Stone any employee of the Secret Service that Trump interacted with on January 6th, and two of his attorneys, John Eastman and Sidney Powell. They want the documents by November 4th and the testimony by November 14th.
0: And why does the committee say it wants the material?
22: Well, the committee says essentially that Trump was behind the whole thing. The committee says it has overwhelming evidence from dozens of Trump's former staff and appointees that Trump purposefully spread false claims of fraud, attempted to corrupt the Justice Department, and pressured state officials to change the results of the elections in their states. So broadly, it said Trump continued to pursue efforts to subvert democracy and overturn the election results, despite the fact that his staff was telling him his claims of election fraud false and that's not to mention that the courts also soundly rejected those fraud claims as well. The
0: letter is in line with the committee's most recent hearing, isn't it?
22: Yeah, it is. I mean, at that hearing, the committee did introduce some new video evidence. Uh, We saw some footage that we hadn't seen before of congressional leaders like House Speaker Nancy Pelosi sort of springing into action after being whisked away from the Capitol during the attack. But the main thrust of that hearing was a broader look at all the pieces of evidence and testimony that had gathered so far um, to lay out the case that Trump was the central player here. People followed him, but... As Liz Cheney, the vice chair of the committee, said, the attack on the Capitol and the violence that we saw would never have happened without Trump. She called him personally and substantially involved in all of it. And ahead of the vote, she described the need to subpoena the former president as a necessary step in the investigation itself.
10: We are obligated to seek answers directly from the man who set this all in motion. And every American is entitled to those answers so we can act now to protect our republic.
0: And Barbara, presidents and former presidents have been subpoenaed, haven't they?
22: They have. And the committee chairman, Benny Thompson, and Cheney as well actually address this in their letter, perhaps in anticipation of something that uh, former President Trump might have to say. They say they recognize a subpoena for a former president. It is significant. They don't take it lightly, but it's not the first time. Uh, They point out that former and sitting presidents, including Richard Nixon, John Tyler, John Quincy Adams, all provided evidence uh, in response to congressional subpoenas.
0: And, and how has Donald Trump Uh, or people around him responded to the prospect of a subpoena?
22: Well, Trump's lawyer told NPR that like with any legal matter, they'll review and analyze the subpoena and they'll respond to what they're calling an unprecedented action. As for Trump, he himself has previously criticized the committee quite harshly. He's called it a, quote, total bust that has only served to further divide the country. After the committee voted last week on issuing uh, that subpoena, Trump sent a 14-page letter to uh, Tom. Thompson calling the members of the committee partisan, political hacks and thugs. He defended his actions leading up to and during the attack on the Capitol, and he actually praised the people who participated in that attack as well. And Piers Barber Sprint, thanks so much. Thank you.
0: Federal Court of Appeals says the Biden administration can't act on the president's plan to cancel billions of dollars in federal student loans. The president announced the plan in August and cited it in his speech just hours before the court's order. It calls for forgiving up to $20,000 of student loans for qualifying borrowers. The administration could have begun processing the applications as soon as tomorrow. NPR education reporter Sequoia Carrillo joins us. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Why is this program in a courtroom in the first place?
14: So this is the case experts have been watching in this kind of tug of war we've been seeing between the White House and conservative groups around the country. There have been a handful of lawsuits that have aimed to stop this program before it really gets going. So far, legal experts have told me most don't cut it. They really aren't worried about many. But this case, filed by six pretty conservative states, was the one with the most potential to halt the program. The states, including Arkansas and Missouri, are home to state-based loan companies that they argued would be hurt by debt cancellation. That's because these companies still manage some very old federal student loans. So the state attorneys general are trying to prove that the debt relief program would mean less profit for those state-based agencies. But Earlier this week, a judge dismissed the case, saying that the case did not have standing. So that just means the plaintiffs were unable to demonstrate concrete harm to these companies.
0: Then help us understand why this ruling came down from the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals last night.
14: So this ruling is not a full stop by any means. This is a temporary hold while the appeals court gets briefed on the case. I spoke to some past sources in the immediate aftermath of the decision, and they assured me this hold does not have anything to do with the merit of the case. It's a procedural hold rather than a ruling of any kind. So while this does put a pause on any immediate loan relief, this is not a fatal shot to the program by any means.
0: What happens next?
14: So now we wait for the appeals court to get acquainted with the case and make their decision. It should be a pretty quick turnaround. We should know more by Monday or Tuesday. And if the court issues an injunction, then the pause is extended and we wait some more. And if it dismisses the case, then the program is back on track to begin any day now.
0: And the program was getting underway, wasn't it?
14: Yes. We've known the details for a while, since August, but the application officially opened this week. But it was... Already pretty big. Yesterday, in a speech at Delaware State University, President Biden said more than 22 million borrowers had already submitted applications, which is a huge number. That's more than half of all qualifying borrowers. And the administration had said they could start changing loan balances as early as Sunday. So that is now on hold. And borrowers just have to wait.
0: Is there something people who have student loan debt should be doing right now?
14: So last night, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona issued a statement saying the court order does not prevent the administration from reviewing the millions of applications they've received. In his words, they're moving full speed ahead to be ready to deliver relief to borrowers who need the help. He encouraged Americans to continue to apply. So if you've already applied for forgiveness, you've kind of done all you can. If you haven't applied yet, the application is still very much open on studentaid.gov slash debt relief. And it takes less than five minutes, so you may as well fill it out if you qualify.
0: NPR education reporter Sequoia Carrillo, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks. Now a story about a bunch of real bloodsuckers. Not vampires, politicians, or even journalists. Mosquitoes. Some mosquitoes seem especially drawn to certain people. They just fly away from others. Why is that? Leslie Vossall and her team of researchers at the Rockefeller University decided to find out. She's the head of the Laboratory of Neurogenetics and Behavior there. Dr. Vossall, thanks so much for being with us.
25: My pleasure. can't wait to talk about mosquito magnets.
0: Well, are you one? I mean, what gave you a personal interest in this?
25: You know, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm not that interesting to them. We worked on this because everybody wants to know. And for 15 years, every day, someone asks me, why am I always attacked at every picnic? And why are my children ignored? Why is my husband ignored? And so we decided to really attack it and do the science.
0: What's the short answer?
25: Short answer is high levels of carboxylic acids on your skin. Carboxylic acids are that natural moisturizer that we all have that keeps our, our skin barrier healthy.
0: So do we make ourselves a magnet when we slather sun cream on or something?
25: None of this makes any difference. The mosquitoes are really queuing into the natural fatty acids on the skin, and you can't strip them off, and you can't cover them up with perfume or anything. So that's why the magnets that we found at the beginning of the study three years later were still the peak-performing mosquito magnets.
0: Wow. I I, I guess that's just our lot in life. Help, Help us understand how you conducted the study.
25: So the whole study was done with Aedes aegypti, which is a dangerous mosquito that spreads dengue, yellow fever, Zika, chikungunya. And so they love humans. They specialize on humans. They don't care about animals. And the way we did this is it involved pantyhose. So this is a big pantyhose experiment. We had people wear nylon stockings on their arms. We cut those smelly nylons into little pieces and used them as bait and then asked hungry female mosquitoes to choose between nylon number one and nylon number two. We did over 2,500 contests in this big tournament to identify the most attractive person of them all.
0: The way you describe it, there's no way out. I mean, if you're just born that way, you're born that way.
25: I don't know if that's comforting news. I think for the people who are magnets, at least you know that you have more carboxylic acids, and that's the reason why.
0: Yeah, once you know this part of the puzzle, if I might put it this way, maybe people can develop some kind of treatment, something as simple as a repellent or or maybe just, I don't know, a series of inoculations that people might take?
25: You're on the right track. So I think that that, that's why the basic science is important is that until you figure out what it is, you can't figure out how to do the next steps. So carboxylic acid levels really mean that you're going to be a magnet. So let's reduce them. Let's Maybe a skin cream that will change the chemistry of your skin, maybe beneficial bacteria that interact with with our skin differently to make us less smelly so there's lots of options and the first step is the science that gives us the answer
0: is smelly a scientific term
25: i try to make the work accessible yeah i could i could say olfactory function but let's go with smelly
0: no i i I absolutely agree (laughs) leslie boss hall professor at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at Rockefeller University. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, sorry, just a little something on my neck.
25: (laughs) It's been so great speaking with you. Thank you so much for your interest in our work.
0: You're listening to NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918 and ahead on Weekend Edition Saturday, our conversation with the head of Common Cause Massachusetts about today's start of early in-person voting.
19: Turn your old
1: vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded
8: by you, our listeners, and by BU College of Fine Arts with Actor's Shakespeare Project, presenting Let the Right One In at Booth Theater, more at bu.edu cfa. Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, helping transform your outdated unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life, fairbankandperry.com, and Ceres, a Boston-based nonprofit advocating for climate-smart policies and a net-zero economy. More at C-E-R-E-S slash W-B-U-R.
2: I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The White House is encouraging student loan borrowers to continue to apply for relief, saying a federal appeals court order temporarily blocking the plan does not prevent applications or their review. An appeals court in St. Louis temporarily blocked the administration's debt relief plan yesterday. Italy's new government has been sworn in with Georgia Maloney as prime minister. Maloney is Italy's first woman prime minister. She's heading Italy's most right-wing administration since World War II. And Hurricane Rosalind has grown into a major hurricane. The National Hurricane Center says Rosalind has strengthened into a Category 3 storm as it heads toward landfall this weekend along Mexico's Pacific coast. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
12: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Orion Pictures presenting Till, based on the true story of Mamie Till Mobley's fight for justice for her son, Emmett Till, starring Danielle Deadweiler. now playing in select theaters everywhere October 28th. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies-buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Polls say that crime is one of the three biggest issues on the minds of voters this year, along with inflation and abortion. Republicans often blame Democrats for rising violent crime. Democrats often brag about funding the police. NPR's Martin Costi reports from the Battleground State of Pennsylvania.
7: The Republican playbook here is similar to what we've been seeing around the country. Take this TV ad by Senate candidate Mehmet Oz.
12: Weak prosecutors, crime skyrocketing, failed liberal policies making us less safe.
7: And in Pennsylvania, the political symbol of crime is the biggest city, Philadelphia. It's suffered a terrible wave of violence recently as the number of shooting victims has jumped almost 60% to two years. Yolanda Jennings lives in West Philly. She's an activist with a group called Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice.
22: I get emotional. I I really get emotional because I do love this city so much. And it's very hard to, to watch the things going on in the city.
7: At the same time, Jennings says she's unhappy with the role that the city's being cast in during this election cycle. We're being used as political tools. Standing at the center of all this is Larry Krasner. He's Philly's progressive district attorney, a nationally known figure in the movement for less incarceration. The Republican-controlled state house has targeted him with something called the Select Committee on Restoring Law and Order. It's been holding hearings throughout the campaign season. Here's State Representative John Lawrence opening one of the sessions with a litany of tragic headlines. Two-year-old shot in another night of gun violence in Philly. Girl, eight. Caught in the crossfire as nearly 50 shots fired in North Philadelphia. So this is not normal. It is not okay. The committee could end up recommending Krasner's impeachment, and that would be just fine with Charles Strange. Uh, I think they definitely have to get rid of Krasner. Wearing a Trump hat and a Phillies jacket, Strange lives in Bucks County, where the select committee just held a hearing on whether Philly crime is now spilling into the suburbs. He believes it is.
9: Oh, it's here. And what are you going to do when you, when they, you lock them up throughout the next day?
7: Ask Krasner about all this, and he sees politics and racism. I think the Republican logic goes like this fear, 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 Willie Horton. That's their logic. Krasner's in his downtown office, sitting underneath a poster of the police mugshots of Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. Philadelphians reelected him by a wide margin last year. And he says that's why the Republican legislature is now talking about impeaching him. It is a fundamentally anti-democratic, fundamentally fascistic effort to erase the votes of the people whose elected official they elect. He says it's true that he doesn't prosecute lower-level crimes such as prostitution or marijuana possession, but he most certainly does go after gun crime. As to the midterms, Krasner says statewide Democrats might do better this year if they took a chance and embraced what he's been trying to do in Philadelphia. There's this huge segment of votes who are left and they are progressive and they're black and they're brown and they're broke, and they will come out for reform prosecutors. And the mainstream Democratic Party
3: is running away from victory and they're running away from success.
7: But outside the city, Democratic candidates are not about to take that advice. In Wilkes-Barre, two hours north of Philly, Congressman Matt Cartwright has just announced a million dollars in federal grants to help hire more local cops. So please join
9: me in saluting these valiant police officers and police departments and commend them on the work that they've done to make our community safer.
7: Cartwright's in a tight race against Republican challenger Jim Bognett and he won't be dragged into giving an opinion about what's happening in Philadelphia.
0: We are immensely proud of the Philadelphia Phillies.
9: We love the Philadelphia Eagles, but we don't really want the problems that they have in Philadelphia with crime and policing and the things that Mr. Krasner is dealing with.
7: So
0: um,
7: I don't have a lot to say about uh, what the answers are there. It's a strategy that's best summed up by Cartwright's latest TV ad, in which the Democratic congressman is endorsed by a man in a red MAGA hat who says he's for the police. Martin Costi, NPR News, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania.
0: Dating may look a lot different now in states where abortion is now effectively banned. Dating now tends to include conversations even before the first meetup about contraception and values. Audrey McClinchey with member station KUT in Austin reports.
26: Amanda Phillips has an image she tries to project in online dating. Cute, progressive, single mom
23: in Austin, Texas. I don't
26: know. Yeah. <laughs> Amanda opens her profile on a dating app she uses. Users can respond to prompts and upload photos.
23: Picture with my friends. You have to have that. You have to,
26: to okay. prove you have
23: friends. Right. A little video where I show my butt. You're welcome.
26: Amanda is 28 years old. She dates both men and women, and she says living in a state where abortion is now effectively illegal has raised the bar for which men she'll date and sleep with. When I'm dating a man, I have to ask myself, am I worth
23: more than $10,000 to them?
26: Why is that the number?
23: Because that's the the bounty for abortion in Texas. And so now that number is, is just in
26: my head. I can't get it out of my head. Amanda's talking about Senate Bill 8, which went into effect in Texas last year. The law allows anyone to sue someone they believe helped a woman get an abortion. If the lawsuit is successful, the plaintiff can be rewarded up to $10,000. Now, you can't sue the person who got the abortion, but SB 8 makes Amanda feel like there's a bounty on her body. I honestly haven't found many men that I trust who put me above
23: that imaginary bounty. Since the
26: U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the ban on abortion in Texas has gotten even more restrictive. And so have the unwritten rules of dating, particularly for many women who date men. Hi, are you Annie? Annie Fitchner lives with her two cats in Austin. As she sits on her couch, she remembers a talk she had last summer with a guy she'd been dating for about a month. After he told her he only uses condoms if a woman asks, she questioned him about what he'd do if she got pregnant. And I think that's like a conversation that I haven't necessarily thought to have to have because I have the power to do whatever I want with my body and doesn't matter what he thinks. But now she says it does matter what a man thinks about whether she gets an abortion. It's going to be quite the process if if I need to, um, especially like financially. Are you prepared to help out with that? For Texans, getting an abortion now means traveling to another state, an expense some can't afford. This all has Annie rethinking the best way to prevent pregnancy and questioning whether using condoms and tracking her fertility is enough. I think it's making a lot of people like second guess their methods of birth control, the types of people that they choose to sleep
22: with, that they go on dates with.
26: This is something Madison Wise has been hearing a lot in sessions. She's a therapist in Austin who works with people in their 20s and 30s. And she says being more selective early on can feel like a lot of work, but could help people find compatible partners more quickly, if that's what they're looking for.
16: There might be a little bit of a higher turnover rate of first dates that just don't go anywhere else. Which is not a terrible thing in the long run. But, yeah, it does take some of that fun carelessness out of it.
26: Wise says many of her clients say they want men to take more responsibility for birth control. Mike Arndt is one of those guys. He's 36 and doesn't want kids. He got a vasectomy right after Roe was overturned. And he puts this fact right there on his dating profile, among a list of reasons to date him.
3: Not a murderer. i good at cooking. I keep my toenails trimmed, not a cop, vasectomy, great sense of humor.
26: His vasectomy is what people comment on.
3: Some women have been like, yeah, I was actually really attracted to the fact that you had a vasectomy, Um, which is something interesting. I, I, I actually did not expect that.
26: Mike tells people who comment on his profile that, in addition to not wanting kids, he got a vasectomy because he doesn't think women should be the only ones worrying about birth control. This really opens the conversation.
3: That's usually a good entry point for um,
21: conversations about shared values and things like that.
26: Back at Amanda's, she's the cute progressive single mom, it's a Friday, and she's going through her closet to find something to wear on two dates that weekend. messy room. She holds up a bright yellow dress.
23: It goes into, like, a deep V, and then it has a cutout in the middle, and I know I look incredible and feel incredible in it, and honestly, like, a lot of people don't deserve to see me in this
26: dress. As excited as she is about what she'll wear, Amanda says living under an abortion ban makes dating even more exhausting than usual. She says having to scrutinize people more, weeding out those you're not sure you can trust, it wears you down. You're like, I'm just going to watch a movie and go to bed. Amanda did end up going on both dates and said she had fun. She's planning a second date with one of the men. Though Amanda, who's bisexual, says she has been dating a lot more women since Roe was overturned. For NPR News, I'm Audrey McGlinchey in Austin.
0: And now it's time for sports. Phillies go up by one, the Astros take off, come back tomorrow night in the NFL, but is that a good idea? And Brittany Griner waits another hearing in Russia, and Pierce Tom Goldman joins us. Tom, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Well, our pleasure. Wait, <laughs> let me take a vote. Uh, <laughs> all right, you won by one. National League, Phillies lead the series 2-1 to one over the San Diego Padres. What a night! For second baseman Jean Jean, as we French say, Segura,
3: <laughs> crazy night. He's playing in his first postseason in 11 years in the majors and making the most of it. In one inning, he had an error, a run batted in, actually had two RBIs on a single, yeah. and he was picked off at first base. In one inning, first time that's happened in playoff history, there were some boos. It's Philadelphia. But elsewhere in the game, he had two fantastic defensive plays. So mostly there's Philly love for Gene Segura. Yeah. Look, I think the American League uh,
0: championship series uh, has been terrific. The Yankees happen to be down two games to nothing against the Astros. I think there ought to be a statute of limitations on resentment of the Astro sign stealing during the 2017 (laughs) World Series. Is it time to note what an amazing team they've been over the long term?
3: Yeah, it is. Uh, This is the sixth straight year they've made it this far to the American League Championship Series, one step away from the World Series. You know, a handful of players have been there for those half dozen years, but the Astros keep replenishing the lineup with new faces. They have a great system. We keep seeing the results in October, like this one. Uh, The series now shifts to New York, where the Yankees certainly can turn things around, but Houston is tough again.
0: Yeah, so let me ask the next question. Okay, just a joke. We can assume no banging on garbage (laughs) cans during
3: their home games? Yeah, I'm afraid so. Yeah, so that means no more banging for you. Um, As part of the cheating scandal aftermath, Major League Baseball took steps throughout the league to prevent the illegal use of electronics to steal signs. That's what the Astros did. Uh, For the last several years, there have been security people watching for shenanigans like banging on garbage cans and people monitoring phone lines to dugouts to prevent any illegal communications.
0: Um, NFL, Tua back tomorrow, the Miami Dolphins, Miami Dolphins quarterback who missed just two games after a horrific concussion last month. They're playing the Steelers, Sunday night football game, winning 29, 21 million people will be watching. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that. How's the league handling his return?
3: You know, it's fair to say the NFL will be holding its breath during this nationally televised game, obviously not wanting Tua Tungavailoa to get injured again, but also not relishing a lot of talk about the controversy surrounding his injuries. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how broadcasters handle it, how much they'll talk about the concussion issue or the debate over whether Tua should or shouldn't continue his playing career. There are those who think he's taking a huge risk by continuing. He himself says his doctors have told him the risk is low low for developing a degenerative brain condition like CTE, at least compared to players like offensive and defensive linemen who were banging heads on every play, you know, but it's, the science at this point is inexact hard to predict what will happen in the future. Although the consensus is Scott repeated concussions are not good. Yeah. Brittany Griner spent her birthday week
0: this week, still in detention in Russia, over drug possession charges, uh, do we know? Do we know what's ahead? Are people? Is Russia County nun people not being able to pay attention in the long term?
3: Well, there's a hearing next week on her appeal of her nine-year conviction. Her lawyers aren't optimistic about uh, a successful appeal, maybe a reduction in the sentence uh, they hope for. According to the few who visited her, she's been anxious and depressed about not getting out anytime soon. There's a basketball hoop at her prison, and her lawyers offered to bring her a ball so she could shoot around. But she said, no, it's too painful
0: to think about. Yeah. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman. Tom, thanks so much. Talk to you soon, my friend. Well, you're welcome, Scott. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Here's something to consider putting on your weekend to-do list. Vote. Early in-person voting for the November 8th election begins today in Massachusetts. That's just one of the voting options established as part of the new state law called the Votes Act. Jeff Foster is the executive director of the nonpartisan watchdog group Common Cause Massachusetts. And he points out that each city and town has its own hours and special locations for casting an early ballot in person.
21: So when the legislature passed the Votes Act, they included in it a requirement based on municipalities population size on how many hours that need to be made available to the public for early voting in person. And so it's really important for you to check to make sure whatever town or city you live in, that you know what their hours are and where their early voting locations are. Folks can already vote by mail now. Uh, Everyone should have received in the mail an application to request a mail ballot. So folks are already filling those out. I've already turned mine in. And you can continue to request a mail ballot up until November 1st. And you can mail it back or turn it into a secure Dropbox or to your local town or city election office all the way up until election day. How would
6: you be able to register and vote on the same day?
21: Sure. So early voting starts now 17 days before election day. So there's a full 14 days for early in-person voting in a general state election. But because the legislature reduced the voter registration deadline to 10 days, there will be seven days during a general election where you could vote early in-person and register Uh, And so while we expect that there's probably a lag time between when you register and when your name will show up on the voter roll, you'll likely need to fill out a provisional ballot if you do try to vote on the same day early that you registered. But it is an added convenience to voters who show up to vote early in person and realize they might need to update their registration information.
6: Massachusetts does not have across the board, same day registration that no matter how you're voting... Talk to us about that. What what are your thoughts on that?
21: So the expansions offered to voters statewide under the Votes Act, namely vote by mail and uh, extended early in-person voting. They are huge wins for democracy. They're huge win for voters. Uh, but unfortunately, what was left out of the Votes Act, it was passed in the Senate, but it wasn't passed in the House, was to finally bring same day voter registration to Massachusetts. What that means is to do away with any arbitrary cutoff or voter registration deadline, and instead allow for voters to be able to register to vote and vote on the same day. We were discouraged to see that it didn't make it into the final bill, and we're gonna continue to push the legislature in the upcoming session to consider passing that into law, making Massachusetts the 23rd state in the country to implement the reform. It's the most impactful equity voting provision that Massachusetts could install in our voting laws And we saw in 2020, uh, 2,500 provisional ballots that had been filled out statewide in the presidential election rejected. That's 60% of all provisional ballots that were filled out statewide in that election. And what we looked at when we saw the data is that it's overwhelmingly in Boston and in our gateway cities. Massachusetts is one of the worst states in the country when it comes to addressing that racial turnout gap. Uh, And we know that the voter registration deadline, 20 days or even now 10 days, is going to continue to create an unnecessary barrier to voter turnout that disproportionately impacts lower income communities and communities of color. And so we know that what's reflected in the provisional ballot rejection data uh, is the fact that we have a few thousand people that tried to turn out to vote in 2020 thinking that they were registered on election day. But they weren't able to be counted simply because they weren't able to update their registration information on the same day.
6: I'm wondering if Common Cause Massachusetts has any additional ability to focus its efforts on the sorts of things we've been talking about, whereas in other States, Common Cause might, um, the branches there might need to be focusing more on their efforts on all the multiple, extremely fraught and intense challenges to voting that are happening in places that are not Massachusetts
21: you know, the Votes Act was drafted really in response to what we were seeing in other states who were working quickly to make it harder to vote. We knew that Massachusetts still had work to do. We still have our own barriers to voting that need to be addressed. And so that was the impetus for the Votes Act. And the Times really ensured a robust debate within the legislature, which ultimately led to a bill getting to and through the governor. Jeff Foster
6: is the executive director of the Watchdog Group, Common Cause, Massachusetts. Early in-person voting runs through November 4th. You can find voting information at WBUR.org.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com.
12: Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer Internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified at DuckDuckGo.com. And from Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, providing instruction for students to catch up or get ahead. Live, online, or in-person programs for reading, comprehension, and math lindamoodbell.com slash NPR.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Cormac McCarthy fans have been waiting 16 years for new work from the renowned American novelist. Two new books are coming, one on Tuesday, the other in December, and they are interconnected. The first starts with a mysterious plane crash at sea That's searched by a neurotic salvage diver who is obsessed with his sister. And the second book consists of conversations between that sister and her therapist. And here's John Burnett has our report.
1: By all accounts, Cormac McCarthy has been working on The Passenger and its sequel, Stella Maris, for at least four decades. Jenny Jackson, the executive editor at Knopf, was brought in in 2014 to work with him in secret.
18: Eight years ago, it was so cloak and dagger that we were working on these books just because McCarthy fans are rabid and they, and any whiff of there being new books was gonna be huge news. And so we would walk down the hall and hand off manuscripts in person. And you know, I, I wasn't telling anyone what we were working on. It was fun.
1: We're sitting in the Napoleon House, drinking Pimp's Cups. It's a venerable watering hole in the French Quarter of New Orleans, where McCarthy lived as a young, penurious writer. The protagonist in The Passenger is a troubled commercial diver named Bobby Western, who frequents the Napoleon House for rambling discourses with eccentric buddies.
18: At the beginning, there's this like, kind of big cast of boisterous characters, and they're all, you know, working as divers and having drinks together and going out to restaurants. And then at the end, they're all each kind of on their own singular journey.
1: Neither of these two new books contains the savagery and bloodletting McCarthy readers have come to expect. There's less action overall and more dialogue. Readers may wonder if McCarthy has mellowed now that he's 89 years old. A breathless blurb on the back cover of The Passenger reads, a sunken jet, nine passengers, a missing body, a salvage diver pursued for a conspiracy beyond his understanding. But this is not a fast-paced crime thriller like No Country for Old Men. McCarthy's book became an Oscar-winning screenplay for the Coen brothers. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir? The most you ever lost on a coin toss? I don't know, I couldn't say. Call it. Call it, yes. The Passenger starts out as a whodunit, but then it veers into Bobby's metaphysical musings. Again, Jenny Jackson.
18: Is what we keep saying over and over again, is that when you're Cormac McCarthy and you've written The Road, what on earth can you do next except tackle God and human consciousness?
1: The Road is McCarthy's best-selling last novel, released in 2006, about a father and son's harrowing journey through a post-apocalyptic landscape. It won a Pulitzer. Here is the reclusive author describing the genesis of the road in his only broadcast interview, granted to Oprah Winfrey in 2007. I just had this image of these fires up on the hill and everything being laid waste, and I thought
8: a lot about my little boy. And so I wrote those pages, and that was the end of it. And then about four years later, I was in Ireland, and I woke up one morning, and I realized that it wasn't two pages of another book. It was a
1: book. The new books are not dark so much as they are dense. Notably, they reflect McCarthy's love and thorough understanding of theoretical physics and mathematics. He has said in his few interviews that he prefers the company of scientists at the Santa Fe Institute near his home in New Mexico. Determined McCarthy fanatics have found advanced copies of the books and they provoked strong reactions.
14: The novels explore all these aspects of human mental behavior. I think they're just marvelous.
2: In some ways, you know, they're flawed. They are likely to be inscrutable to a lot
13: of people.
12: Let's just say they're not my favorite novels. They are brain teasers, but they're also really compelling, and the characters are really rich and fascinating. And... I think people are going to love them or hate them.
1: That's Diane Luce, former president of the Cormac McCarthy Society, Brian Gemza, literature professor at Texas Tech University, and Lydia Cooper, English professor at Creighton University. They were interviewed last month at the Cormac McCarthy Conference in Savannah, Georgia. One of the organizers of that conference was Stacey Peebles. She's an English professor who teaches a McCarthy course at Center College. She's also editor of the Cormac McCarthy Journal.
12: I've had students coming by my office. They say, are you gonna teach the new ones? I'm so excited, you know, um, I'm, I'm definitely signing up.
1: Peebles has read both of the new books.
12: You know, we've been waiting for these a long time. I mean, there's always a possibility that you're gonna read something new and be disappointed. But I read them once, I read them again. And i will probably keep reading them. I mean, all of McCarthy's works have sentences that'll just stop you cold, but these have a lot of those.
1: God's own mudlark trudging, cloaked, and muttering the barren selvage of some nameless desolation where the cold sidereal sea breaks and seethes and the storms howl from out of that black and heaving alkahest. McCarthy, who still composes on a manual typewriter, is considered one of the greatest and most influential writers in the English language.
0: I began to notice fairly early on that a lot of these students were writing like Cormac McCarthy.
1: Texas novelist Stephen Harrigan made this observation when he taught a fiction writing course at the Missioner Center for Writers at the University of Texas at Austin.
0: They were writing with... Uh, with strange locutions, like he rode isolate into the Darkling Plain, <laughs> that kind of language, you know. And, uh, and this also this Old Testament, archaic usage that, that creates a kind of spell, particularly for young writers.
1: The McCarthy spell is about to be cast again, and not just for readers, but for researchers. Cormac McCarthy's literary papers are archived in a locked cabinet in the Whitliffe collections at Texas State University. Steve Davis, literary curator there, rolls it open for an inquisitive reporter. So it's about a hundred boxes of Cormac material that we have here. Uh, his collection begins with his first book, Outer Dark. 98 boxes to be exact. And the 98th box has been restricted for 15 years. McCraffee scholars are already standing in line to delve into it the same day The Passenger goes on sale. This is the box for the new novel, The Passenger. And we're gonna pull out this first big folder which says The Passenger, Old First Draft. typescript and photocopy pages heavily corrected in pencil. Perhaps the contents of this box will reveal how Cormac McCarthy's challenging new novels evolved and why he wrote them. John Burnett, NPR News.
0: And later today, in all things considered, do sheriffs think they're more powerful than the president? Question posed by a new reporting project that's investigating the constitutional sheriff movement, basically, the idea that a sheriff's authority can take precedence over certain state and federal laws. You can tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Tuvalu knows the pain of a breakup. Tuvalu also knows breakups can build paths to self-discovery. She takes us along on that journey on her new album, Dirt Femme. Tuvalu joins us now from Los Angeles. Thanks very much for being with us.
24: Thank you so much for having me. Is
0: that pretty much how everybody feels? That a breakup is so painful they think they're going to die, and then one day they take another breath and then another step and get beyond it?
24: I, I guess it depends on what kind of love it was. I know of people who are, you know, they kind of end things beautifully and as friends and you kind of, you know, go on and live your life and, you know, the, you know there's not too much pain there. But I think if you've had a dramatic relationship or you're just maybe an intense, passionate person, depending on how much you've given of yourself in a relationship and in love, that's, that's how much yeah. um, it's going to feel like it's taken away.
0: I gather you, in, in personal life, have been happily married since July of 2020. Congratulations.
24: Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's a, it's been a good journey.
0: Yeah. Does that change how you see things, how you see love, how you see coming together? And
24: Yeah, I understand why people get married now. I used to not think that that was something that I wanted. I used to feel like it was unnecessary for the relationship, but I think... I understand it in the feeling of like wanting to celebrate having found a person that you can see yourself spending all of your life with it's funny like i am quite untraditional in a lot of ways but i i love wearing a ring i love being a wife <laughs> i really feel um it feels really really good now here i am with you and never
0: let me ask you about uh this song suburbia because it seems to indicate you're wrestling with this new identity as a married person
24: i want to think of myself as an independent woman i can have like i have everything in order like i can take care of myself but i can't deny that i feel i need him in my life and and i depend on him and he depends on me and we have a very very close bond and i feel like we're together and like, this is it. But then I think about, okay, but what if we have a family and all of a sudden we're in this life that maybe we didn't see each other have. And there's other challenges that come along like, will we'll be able to handle them. Will we still be us? You know, all of those fears, I guess, that come in. Yeah.
0: But if you spend too much time fretting about what could be, you'll never enjoy what is.
24: No, it's very true. So I, I try to write songs like that and then I let it go <laughs> and I keep living life. You have a song
0: with a title that we can't say on the air. <laughs> it starts with the word attention and is used to describe somebody who um, I think our listeners can fill in the blanks. You, you, you You describe yourself that way?
24: It's, you know, tongue-in-cheek, and and, and yeah, I I mean, the first moment where that kind of part of my personality uh, was shining through was when I was maybe five. I would go with my family to our neighbor's house across the street on the weekend, and it would be everyone from the little neighborhood would be there, and it would be barbecue, and we would hang out. When everyone had arrived, I would go back home and change into my princess dress and my rainbow sparkly shoes oh. and I would walk back in to make an entrance when everybody was there. Oh! So <laughs> very early on I... This is adorable. Adorable and also a little bit bratty. <laughs> so you know there was clearly a need for attention early on. And I think in that song, too, you know, it's like my kind of sassy, jealous, drunk song. Like sometimes when I'm a little bit drunk and I'm feeling myself and I, you know, and and I get a bit jealous and and I can be like, why are you talking to that person? You should be looking at me. Look how it's just like this, you know, you're not right, but you're going to do it anyway. (laughs) It's like, yeah, (laughs) admitting to a pretty big flaw in my personality. I
0: I don't know if everybody has a sassy, jealous, drunk song,
24: but. (laughs) <laughs> I,
0: I guess if you do, you wind up pursuing music as a career.
24: Yeah, why not?
0: What made you a musician? Do you think
24: the number one thing that makes me happy, outside of my husband, is uh, singing? And and I feel like when I noticed that I could could sing and I liked to sing, it was my space of of freedom and and and, and like um, letting out all my emotions. I think that you have to sort of, you can't just unleash that on people all the time, wherever you are. So I needed to find a space to do that. And music has really done that for me.
0: One of your last songs in this album. We can say this one on the air, kick in the head. Let's share the issue of directives that you lay down for yourself. I guess that's good advice for more or less anybody. Uh, Why did you feel the need to give it to yourself?
24: I think because the start of 2020, I kind of felt stripped of everything regarding my artistry. Like I wasn't, my record deal was out, I wasn't touring, I wasn't doing interviews, I wasn't putting out music, I didn't feel like writing music. So I kind of felt just like, oh, who am I when I'm just me without constantly being in my artist element, so to speak. I was kind of panicked about who that person was. It's a feeling, I think, even outside of the pandemic that I think a lot of us can relate to. It's the frustrating feeling of constantly feeling like you're not doing enough. And it's it's not a fair feeling, maybe, but I think it's a very common feeling. Not doing enough, not being enough, all that.
0: Do you find when sometimes you have to reach for it, it winds up being better?
24: I feel like in, in general, I'm not very naturally good at things. I have to practice and work on it. So I think it's the same with my songs. Like I need to work on them for a while and, and kind of look for the cracks until I know if I really believe that it's where it should be.
0: Look for the cracks. What's in a crack?
24: The The flaws. The cracks on the wall.
0: And you fill them in and...
24: Fill them in, paint them over. <laughs> Sometimes you leave them because it adds character and personality, but...
0: <laughs> that seems to be good advice for a lot in life, really.
6: A still alive
0: Tuvalu, Swedish musician, talking about her new album, Dirt Femme out now. Thank you so much for being with us. Good luck to you with this.
24: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon.
12: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Don Foote Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project at house or DonFoot.com Beauty on Time. And Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth On this week's On the Media, obesity is cited as a risk factor for COVID-19, but maybe some of that risk lies outside those patients'
7: bodies. People with obesity are treated differently by the medical profession.
6: Plus, how folks with a little extra adiposity were knocked down a few pegs on the hierarchy of humanity on the next On the Media from WNYC.
9: Today at 1 on 90.9 WBUR.
11: I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.